Support for Neo Conversations comes from Interface, a globally recognized leader in commercial flooring. Interface's modular system of carpet tile and LVT helps customers create spaces that enhance the productivity and well-being of those who use them. Better products, happier people, healthier planet. Learn how Interface creates positive spaces around the world at interface.com. We wanted to have our own building such that it would reflect who we were, how we wanted to work, and how we wanted the community to see us and engage with us. It was not intended to be an icon. It was intended to tell its story. Let's tell a good story, let's tell it well, and let's tell where we come from and where we're going. And that's the narrative behind a lot of design decisions, including the location. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers, and this is Neo Conversations, the podcast brought to you by Neocon about the exciting changes and issues impacting the commercial design industry. In this episode, we're asking, what are the challenges and opportunities involved in bringing teams from disparate offices together into a unified headquarters? And if that HQ doesn't exist yet, what is involved in the design and construction of that project so that it encompasses the brand's DNA, supports company culture, and sends a strong message to the world about the company's mission? Interface, along with architecture and design firm Perkins & Will, is in the process of answering these very questions through the realization of Interface's new HQ in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm talking to two of the key players to learn all about it. My name is Chip DeGrace. I'm Vice President of Customer Engagement here at Interface. Chicago is my home, though I'm seldom here. I travel quite a bit. I lead design and the brand. I connect with customers and make certain that the business fully understands our customer in a way that's compelling and meaningful. I've worked for Interface now for 29 years, believe it or not. It's a phenomenal company and a great idea. It's been an industrial company that's always done things differently, and I've enjoyed my tenure, so that's why I stick around. I'm Joe Connell. I'm a design principal with Perkins & Will in the commercial interiors studio, focusing on workplace. I'm Chicago-based, although I live in Oak Park. Actually, no, I sleep in Oak Park. I don't live in Oak Park. I do this because I'm a junkie for environmental behavior research. I love the connection between place and space and behavior. And I usually do that in the context of workplace where people work like offices of ad agencies and could be showrooms. But much more recently, it's starting to spill over into colleges of businesses and healthcare environments and other places where people want to be more effective and workplace culture matters. Okay, let's dig into this new Interface HQ project. You guys have been working on this together, is that correct? We have been working on this together. There's a big team behind us, though. We are people that talk nice, so we get to, we always get the front, but there's a huge <laughs> team of talented people behind us. Well, thank you for making sure to share the credit. Let's talk about this project, because it's very exciting. First of all, how did you two come together to work on this project? Well, Joe and I have known each other a long time. In fact, I'm an interior designer by background and actually worked with Joe back when we were kids in the early days. That isn't why we're working on the project together, however. Perkins & Will was uh, interviewing, as were a couple other qualified firms, and they won the project. Joe and the team just did a really great job in addressing our needs and our goals uh, in the interviewing process. And I was lucky enough to have a long-time working relationship with Interface back to when Chip left the interior design side when we were colleagues, and he switched over to being involved in a lot of different creative pursuits for Interface. We worked together on showrooms and some of their workplaces, even exhibit design, and some of their customer experience spaces in Georgia. Chip, why don't you give me 
the grand overview and the background of the project. What were the goals? It's a new HQ, right? So what does it have to do? Where does it have to do it? Who does it have to do it for? When does it have to be done? And why are you doing it to begin with? Well, you know, Interface is a manufacturer of modular flooring. Uh, we do it around the globe. Uh, we have three businesses, one in Asia, one in Europe, and one in the Americas. And this new facility has to represent all three of those businesses. It will mostly house the America's business, but it will represent the Interface brand and its culture. And for the first time, be a physical space that reinforces and, and supports what Interface is about, which is you know, collaboration and visibility and transparency. So we started two, three years ago, quite honestly, three years ago, looking for space. And we considered many things within the Atlanta area, from an old chicken processing plant to new build out of the ground. And we felt that an existing building was probably our best choice. We were trying to obviously anchor ourselves in the community, put ourselves in a place for our existing associates and associates that we will have in the future. We didn't want to be a tenant in a large building with a name on a directory, but instead we wanted to have our own building uh, such that it would reflect in very specific terms who we were, how we wanted to work, and how we wanted the community to see us and engage with us. So the building we chose uh, is in Midtown Atlanta. You know, Atlanta doesn't have great public transportation, but the MARTA system is literally right across the street. It is below grade, so above grade is all grass and trees, which is phenomenal. It's in the Arts District, as is Joe's home down there, and of course Perkins and Will's right around the corner, so I'm sure we'll be hanging out together. Uh, and so our story, we're going to document it well with all of its trials, tribulations, and successes. Talk about how, you know, we've tried to transform this building into something that's not only beautiful and inspiring, but also responsible and, and gives back to the community and, and to the environment. And it's finally going to have all of us together. Culturally, we were split up. Even in Atlanta, we were split up. And so this was a, a way to get, you know, the lion's share of the Atlanta-based associates together where we could collaborate a whole lot easier. Interface is a very collaborative culture. We practice design and innovation broadly. And so having all of our associates in one building able to see each other and bump into each other on the stair or in the cafe is something, it's going to be transformative. I mean, we just haven't had that. Joe, I want to give you a chance to chime in. Site selection sounds like it was crucial not just the sustainability benefits of repurposing an existing building, but also the social message you send when you don't just obliterate something that's already in the landscape and erase it and then rebuild something new. So can you talk a little bit about what was important for you in terms of site selection here? There was a lot that went into site selection, and site selection often involves assessing a lot of trade-offs. So having convenience might mean much more expensive space, so you have to think about how you can maybe reuse space if you want that convenience. Or if you want to repurpose a building, sometimes you have to accept some of those constraints of that building, but turn it into something that maybe helps your culture and your story. When we arrived, there were, I don't know, a half dozen or more neighborhoods and, and properties under consideration, but pretty quickly, Jay Gould, the CEO, settled on a location that he <laughs> termed it at the intersection of cool and dodgy. It was a, a sketchy building in an anonymous block and kind of a busy byway, but with great location, great location in the middle of customers, great vibrancy, access to culture, to universities. And it started to establish really what was an opportunity for Interface to become not just a showroom, but to think about a client experience in a much more engaged way, where it's much more hands-on, it's much more experiential, where every square foot of the space and the place and the building would be customer ready and tell a story. 
It was not intended to be an icon, an image-making piece of architecture. It was intended to tell a great story. So if we want to tell a story, let's tell a good story. Let's tell it well, and let's tell where we come from and where we're going. And that's the narrative behind a lot of design decisions, including the location. So when we think about workplace, we often think about workplace as a system. And not unlike Interface talks about their product as a system. It's the research behind it. It's a product in its full life and then afterlife. Uh, we think of, of workplace in the same way, having a lot of flexibility. The building can adapt. It's tied to well-being. It's tied to a customer experience. It's tied to product stories. It's tied to after-product stories. It's tied to an exchange of knowledge and, frankly, some emotion. That's an important part of the story that makes it memorable. So all these things factored into and made, and made the, the site selection much clearer, actually, and then that launched really with a design ethos for how we were going to tackle the building. This was a hideously ugly building. I mean, hideously ugly. So you need to be clear on your objectives because looking at it, you know, you have to see, see through see through <laughs> that facade and the bad, you know, bad windows and just everything about the building superficially, aesthetically, was, was, uh, was not good looking. But the structure was there. And so, you know, with the objectives in mind and with P&W's perspective and, and JLL, who helped us along the way, we found the right building. Can you tell me anything about the former life of this building, what it was before or when it was built? It was, a, it was an office building, a small office building. And we didn't have an opportunity to add on to it because it's a very constrained site. The parking, as Chip mentioned, is below grade, which means we can't add more parking. And uh, by code, if you add more square footage, you need to add more parking. Mm. Um, it's adjacent to a condo building that uses part of this building as its entrance to West Peachtree Street. Actually, two condo buildings. So there's high-rise condo buildings on two sides, which was a design constraint. Yeah. One of the biggest things that I think this building presented was eyes wide open going into this, it was too small. It was too small to fit the way Interface was working at the time. Mm -hmm. So one of the discussions and a big part of our discovery process with leadership and in, in Chip pulling these people together to really start to make some, some decisions about not how we work, but how we might work. Think how we're going to use space differently. The utilization has to change. We have to provide more amenities. We're not in our office much, so do we need to have all these assigned spaces? And eventually that led to an embracing of an idea to have less square feet per person, but more amenities per person. So if we think about the kinds of spaces that we all work in, whether you're in an office or a workstation or you sit at a bench at the end of a table or something, Instead of thinking that as your assigned space, let's say it's six by eight feet, what we're really asking all the associates to do is say, can you get your work done in 45,000 square feet? That's your office. Use all of it. Use the wellness center. Use the fitness center. Use the phone rooms. Use the rooftop deck. Use the conference rooms. Use everything that you need. These are all your tools for you to be effective with customer, on your own, with associates. And that idea of embracing a new way of working is something that started to get a lot of energy when we had made the design decision about decoupling and untethering people from their desks, then a lot of things start to change. So when you are asking everyone to embrace a different way of working like that, there is inherently some foundation rattling, some unrest, let's say. <laughs> as, <laughs> let's say, let's say. <laughs> Absolutely. So an interface is known as a company with a strong corporate culture and a, you know, a very prominent sustainability mission. So... What kind of opportunities and challenges showed up in working on this project and presenting this sort of unrest to the associates who will inhabit the space? Well, as we 
uh, earlier indicated, we're coming from disparate office space. And one of the spaces where probably half the population is coming from is very sort of 80s, solid mahogany doors, a lot of private offices. Mm-hmm. And then the, the balance of the constituencies coming out of loft space near a freight train track, open brick walls, you know, fairly open and live. So we didn't even have a consistent environment that they were coming from. Having said that, though, nothing like this works without good leadership. And Joe referenced uh, Jay Gould. You know, he is a guy who's driven purpose-driven companies before he understands how culture is at the cornerstone of this thing. And he himself has you know, said to his leadership team, look, we're not going to have private offices. No one's going to have private offices. We will have appropriate space for you know, people who need quiet space, as you know, some executives will. But you know, so, so as would the legal team at times or HR. So there are no private offices. But as I said, we're a manufacturing organization, of course, who sells in markets and designs. So there are still people who are going to have full-time desks. So it, it isn't entirely uh, you know, free range. Mm-hmm. And we try to keep that number to a reasonable level based on need, not based on hierarchy or title or any of those things. Because, you know, again, HR and finance and some of those people, even some of the designers have double screens. They, they have a lot of stuff. Yeah. And they need to stay put. You know, it came from the top. The choices on work types and, and the furniture to support it was based on Jay saying, look, let's rethink the way that we have been working and think about the way we work when we're at our best here at Interface. And let's give that information to Perkins and Will so that they can then put this into this structure and make this thing come alive. And how did you receive that information, Joe? And then how did you translate it to make it come alive? The discovery process was prolonged. We literally started with getting on airplanes and looking at other locations with leadership and starting to gauge their tolerance on one, on change, Mm -hmm. and two, on vision. And we started to get a pretty good sense of what the aspirations were, but we needed to make it real. So there were a lot of listening sessions. We had a very robust programming process where we had focus groups across the organization. We're talking about a work population of approximately 150 people. Each person had a chance to contribute concerns or questions, um, voting in some cases on everything from furniture mock-ups to arrangements. We did some micro-polling where people got pinged on their phone a couple times a day to find out what were they doing, how many people were they working with, what tools did they need or require for them to be more effective. So we had a lot of data. We had over 10,000 pieces of data that we tried to formulate, assemble, and figure out what we were trying to solve for. What we're trying to solve for fundamentally is the workplace culture. And the workplace culture is really made up of the behavior that you do over time. That's what culture is. And the flip of the switch here was to try and say, well, the space to accommodate your activity is not necessarily something you need to own. Mm-hmm. If you can be decoupled from your space, let's say that you need privacy and you need heads down or you need two screens or you need special printers to replicate a woven textile, then you should be next to that piece of equipment or next to a teammate. But maybe you don't need to. So for those people that can be mobile with their work or be more effective to find the space that suits their task, then we can provide a catalog of space types. And one of the mantras that started to evolve was this idea that if we can be decoupled, that we provide variety choice, permission, and tools for people to be effective. And if you have variety, let's say you need to be in a small group, you need to have a sensitive conversation, you need a nap, you need to recharge, you need to refresh, you need outdoor light, you need quiet, you can find those places. It's just not owned. So if you're mobile and there's not a reason for you to be tethered to a desk, then use the mobility as a way to be effective. And that you have a culture now that's permissive, that's trusting you to find the space that you feel 
and you select will be effective. So each person that will be working in this building will have up to three choices that they can go work at. Something that might be like their desk or a conference room or a training room or a rooftop or uh, an amenity space, a cafe, something like a Starbucks. And obviously every square foot is also customer ready. So this is a story that will be told to the customers. It'll be part of their experience too. It sounds like a very dynamic space that's been very well thought out to not only adapt to the needs of the associates and the population there, but to also help them adapt to a more effective culture for the whole company. But let's talk some specifics here. You started with an existing site with a hideous building, and we've got to deal with the facade. What kind of approach did you guys take? Well, it's interesting. Perkins and Will gave us several options of what the building should look like, which is always a difficult uh, decision for a company to make or for a tenant to make. It's the first thing you see. It sits in the landscape. It needs to uh, reflect who we are to the city. And some were architectural and some were not. And the, the one that was the most compelling and the biggest step, I think, off of the abyss here was uh, a fairly smooth curtain wall and uh, a large graphic of a deciduous forest, basically taken from a black and white photograph, wrapping the entire building. And the metaphor comes from, you know, interface using nature really as a model for not only design, but also for our business systems. I mean, nature is the perfect ecosystem. And a forest, of course, is uh, that combination of ecosystems that if we could replicate it in our culture, we would uh, we would not be in some of the situations we're currently in. And so Perkins and Wilson will hell if a forest is your model, then why don't we why don't we wrap this thing in that graphic uh, representation? And the more we looked at it, the stronger it got. And the bolder it got, and it felt as if, again, we were putting our chin out there a bit, saying that we, in fact, are about nature as our model, and let's aspire to that. And then as Perkins and Will talked about it and at the actual application, they said, look, you'll be able to see interface through this as we execute this. I mean, it's going to take some doing, and we're going to have to figure it out, but you'll be able to, depending on time of the day, you'll be able to say interface at some level of transparency through the forest. And so the more we talked and the more that they presented the actual execution, the more real it got and the more romantic it got. So, uh, yeah, we were in love with it. We just think it's super cool. It does sound romantic. What does it feel like on the inside? What's the light filter and the transparency and visibility like for people on the inside? Well, that's maybe the best feature is from a distance you get the sense of a black and white graphic of uh, the nearby native Piedmont forest. So that's a little clue to what that land might have looked like before all these buildings were put in place in Midtown. So it works at a big scale. When you're inside, it provides all the occupants dappled light, which is part of biophilic design, just like you do on the floor of the forest. You get dappled light. So if you imagine sitting there, you're looking out really a pixelated dot screen at the very immediate scale. From the outside, it looks like a fairly smooth photograph that's been turned into a black and white conversion. But the dappled light ends up being an important part of one of the patterns or the nature analog essential to biophilic design. The pattern is pixelated enough where we'll see moving patterns, but it ends up being somewhat diffused on the edges. So you don't get these sharp lines that move across your desk or across the product. And then what's also kind of cool is like a lot of the products that we attempt to make and design, there is no repeat here. So not unlike nature, you take six steps in a forest, look one way, look down. I mean, nothing is the same. And so depending on what floor you're on, the graphic is different downstairs at grade. 
and much more open as it would be at the top of a forest up on the fourth floor. So it's a variable patterning. The other thing it does, since it's a pretty crisp black and white image, or it's more actually clear and white. The white makes a really strong connection to the iconic buildings that are part of the art center. So it actually has this nice context for these crisp white buildings at the High Museum and Symphony. Woodruff. Uh, the Woodruff, right. And so that this beautiful connection to these cultural institutions that have these sort of gleaming buildings on the hill. And this is a new, really bright spot, literally bright spot on West Peachtree. I love the idea of no repeat. I think when people hear pattern, their mind goes immediately to a wallpaper type of situation where your brain sort of instantly wants to pick out the pattern and find the repeat. (laughs) It's really hard to do things random, uh, but nature does it so well. So you guys had very serious goals with this project, both lead and well. So let's start with your lead goals, which we know refers to leadership in energy and environmental design. So regarding sustainability, what were some of the key areas you focused on and what choices were made to meet your goals? I'll let Joe talk about the specifics, but one overarching focus, which doesn't necessarily specifically involve lead or well, was something that Interface is doing called factories as forests. Uh, In this case, it'd be facilities as forests. But we're going around the globe looking at our facilities, and we're benchmarking, again, nature. Bill Browning and Terrapin Bright Green are taking a look at the site that our buildings sit on, and they're benchmarking what that would have been in pristine condition. In other words, if the building hadn't been there, what would be given back in terms of reclamation of soil or water, carbon sequestration, the kind of things that, again, a natural ecosystem does. Mm -hmm. And that is our baseline for these buildings. And again, very difficult for a built warehouse or factory or office building to actually meet those. Yeah. But why have anything less than that as a baseline? So that is something that Interface is overlaying really in any of our buildings or spaces. Uh, and that was handed to P&W in, in addition to, you know, going after both lead and well with the constraints that the building gave us. And lead and well are two related but very different systems of assessing a building's quality and its connection to the user's. Lead, of course, is a very robust, and this is version four for people that know lead. Uh, that's a very difficult, the newest and latest standard. It sets very high bar. It requires a lot of attention to systems aggressive goals and aggressive measurement and aggressive evidence of claims. But its primary focus is on the building as an artifact, the building as a system, and the building as something that uses carbon, water, electricity. Well, on the other hand, doesn't care about the building. It cares about the occupants. Mm. So well looks at well-being. Is it a walk-in building? Do you have healthy water? Do you have variety of temperatures? Do you have circadian lighting? Do you have areas that are cool, warm, Do you have areas of respite, areas of refresh? Do you have reduced the sugar that's being served on site? Do you compost? These are all parts of the well-being that relate and sometimes nicely overlap with lead. This is unusual, and first for me, where we take on aggressive biophilic incorporation in the design, lead version 4 at a platinum standard, and well, all at the same time, is remarkable investment in the belief that space and buildings matter to well-being not just to the customers, but to their associates and what will be the outcome of their products that are really generated here. One thing, if I could just mention, that I didn't mention at the outset, is that Perkins & Will has a building, again, a couple blocks away, and their building is slightly larger than ours. But what we liked about their solution for their own building is they were focused on the systems and HVAC systems, water. I mean, all of the infrastructure of the building was well-conceived and designed and executed. 
both lead and well, those same systems have been paid close attention to, and a fair amount of budget has been applied in those areas. In fact, we've made concessions to maybe aesthetics in some cases to afford the kind of hyper-proactive and progressive systems to meet these goals. An important part of being in lead and well is telling the story to the users. So unlike a lot of buildings where water recovery systems or micro wind turbines or the green roof might be good for the lead checklist or good for the systems in terms of operations. In this case, it's an important part of the story and the experience of the building. So the systems are on display like they are in our office in Midtown. Um, The systems are on display. It's part of the teaching tool. It's part of the education. And and long-term, we think it affects behavior because you are more knowledgeable about everything from waste to how the caterer is going to deal with disposables, how you um, you deal with refrigeration, how you deal with nursing moms. These are all issues that affect every one of those systems. What are some of the ways that you make these systems part of the story and on display? Give me some kind of concrete examples of how you handled some of these. Well, one easy example, perhaps, is the water recovery system. There is a gray water system and a stormwater retention system that holds a 12,000-gallon tank in the parking garage. So anyone that's coming by car to the building is going to park next to and see a water recovery system that's actually going to have an indication of it's capturing rainwater, gray water, It's using infrared to filter that water, which is a new system as well for buildings of this type as opposed to swimming pools or healthcare environments. So a very high standard for that. And what we expect is that from the green roof all the way down to these cisterns, there's going to be text there or graphic displays that will tell people about what the system is doing, how they measure up. And interfacing is very generous about telling the lessons that they learn. Good and bad. Like, we went down this road, it didn't work, we made a correction, we learned from it. They're very generous in telling those stories to all their visitors and to their associates. So this is a teaching tool in a case study. And going in, they say, you know, we're going to try some things that are new. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to tell that story too, and we're not going to give up on it. For instance, on some of the workplaces, we have these areas that are called work choices where people can select the space that they want to work in. For a well standard, we need to have areas that are bright, medium and dark in terms of light color and temperature. We need areas that are cooler versus warmer. We need areas that are private. We need areas to see the horizon. We need blinds that react to daylight conditions. We even need blinds to react to reflected light from other buildings. So those are all the kinds of systems that go into really thoughtful systems and integrated systems for the users. One thing I'll say about the cistern, it is not particularly attractive. I wish I could have designed or had (laughs) had them design a better looking cistern because I can guarantee you, we put a window, a sizable peering window in, and right now it looks like probably about 20 porta-potties ganged together. But I can guarantee you that all the interface associates will be running, you know, running people down there proud as heck of that cistern and what it, how it feeds the water system of the building. But it actually is an elegant solution because the parking deck is, the deck-to-deck is fairly shallow. So it's not a high area. And so they had to bring it in in the cistern and in pieces and, and put it together. So it is an elegant solution. And we'll get plenty of play. I'm going to reckon that everybody that goes into that building is going to see that thing because everyone's going to be proud of it and understand how that system works. The other thing, Joe, I think maybe if you want to mention this, but carbon sequestration and carbon as a as an element to consider in specification of materials and so forth, as you guys went through the you know specification process and material selection for architecture and furniture, was something that we focused on. In every product, I mean, part of lead and part of well is not just making claims that you've done something. It's giving evidence with third-party validation that something is working. 
So that includes every component that makes up every product that goes in there. So there's a health declaration and environmental declaration for all the substances for everything from clock to tile to, of course, your own product to components of furniture and light fixtures. There is a lot of evidence chasing as part of these design decisions. It may look integrated in the end, but it's a lot of evidence chasing. A lot of product decisions were made because people were forthcoming or not forthcoming with that evidence that a product is meeting these standards. Carbon sequestration and water ended up being key features for this site and for our interior. Because we don't have a big green space, we can't do some of the other things that you might be able to do in larger systems. No solar. We have a relatively small roof, so we can't collect a lot of rainwater. Um, Right, Solar is really out. We're in a constricted site, so wind is not really effective here. So we have to do what we can prioritize. Carbon and water end up being things that were big. And for such a, a busy building that does a lot of client entertaining and fairly high density, water was an important issue. So we worked hard on making sure that those two aspects of the systems were really, really working and doing a lot for ourselves on the communication and the teaching side. There is a partial green roof to help on heat island and also to slow down and be part of the gray water system. We're not walking on it, but it is part of the investment in um, the water collection system. And outdoor air was a big issue. We, we did debate whether or not we could get more fresh air in the building uh, on the curtain wall system. But in fact, we are bringing in 130% of fresh air, much higher standard than any office building that you would see, to help really wake people up and get the best and highest oxygen. We have carbon dioxide sensors that are going to be in the system to bring in more fresh air when needed. And then we have uh, some great spaces up on the rooftop deck that are both training spaces, meeting spaces, entertainment spaces, and we can get outdoor spaces up there as well. And talking about air, this does not have a conventional HVAC system. We've invested in uh, a chilled beam system to create air in the space that's obviously properly humidified, proper temperature, given where you are in the building. And their engineering partner spent a good amount of time, and we spent a fair amount of our investment in this system, which is pretty cool. And I guarantee you, not unlike the cistern, people are going to be pointing at the ceiling, and just about every associate in the building will probably be literate on how this chilled beam system actually uh, pays back. That is fascinating. And um, I'm wondering if you're taking applications, because I want to apply for a job there. (laughs) Joe, you mentioned something briefly. You acknowledge the Interface product. And so that begs the question, Interface is a flooring manufacturer. How are you applying the Interface products within the space? When I'm working on a space for them, we're designing the space so that the product can be the show. We want, in some cases, the walls, whether they're glass or whether they're solid, whatever materials they are in the furniture, to yield to a dominant floor. So the floor can tell a story. And sometimes that story might be quiet. It might be vibrant, it might be patterned, it might be monolithic, but in fact, we always know it's going to be dynamic. So we want the floor to be something that changes as much as you think of the seasons changing. So in that regard, we wanted to get a lot of the architecture to showcase the floor. So we even stairs will stop a little short of the floor so we can see the dominant carpet that could go in or the resilient flooring can go underneath. And then Interface is going to curate the look and feel of that floor on their own. So their creative team and application team is working on somewhat separately, but we think that probably a third of this facility is going to have new product every year so that it always feels new, it always feels fresh, and there's always a reason to come back here. If you've been recently, that's great, but we want you to come back because you're going to see something new and you're going to see an application that's going to hopefully inspire you. Yeah, and some of the solutions, Amy, that our creative team came up with are quite bold. Uh-huh. You know, we're a flooring 
modular flooring company and you know making LVT and, and carpet tile. And people should come and see some things that are out there. They should see some things that are not only um, you know bold, but also maybe futuristic. And so there'll be areas on the floor that display both of those ideas. In addition, we're trying to reflect in this office the way our customers' office and work, you know, and their challenges are reflected there. So, you know, something we call positive spaces is the variability that Joe talked about that well begs for, which is specificity in lighting and in furniture to support what people need. The floor can do that too. So, you know, our team is put together in very specific ways, specific flooring solutions, you know, that support the activity that we expect to have happen on that floor. So it'll be dynamic and it'll be cool and it will change. And uh, that's going to be the best part about it. Well, the changing part, I mean, that just sort of puts a capital M on modularity. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And that also reminds me that we've been talking about this HQ and all of the different ways that will service the associate, but it's also a showroom. It's a showroom in quotes. Okay. There will be an analog to what you would find in other cities uh, if you came to an interface space, for sure. And there's workspace and samples and access to designers and so forth. Most definitely, that will be accessible on the first floor off the street. But unlike other facilities, you'll be able to see, again, a, a range of application and a range of things that you might not see you know, in a traditional showroom. So as Joe said... The entire building is customer ready, and expectation is that we can walk them through, show vignettes, talk about why we've chosen certain products for certain applications, and it'll be the most turbocharged uh, showroom you've ever seen, probably. <laughs> there was even discussion on whether it should be called a showroom. I don't even mm-hmm. know if it's even been settled, but one analog that was discussed as a, as a poor example was the car showroom, where it seems like a static place where objects just sit there and you walk around them, and that aspect of a showroom was not appealing. What was appealing was having a very dynamic customer engagement kind of environment where food and beverage can be part of that, storytelling can be part of that, inspiration can be part of that, even where the product is coming from. So the some of the product design team is actually going to be resident right next to the, the exhibit spaces so that people can see what is coming up. Where does the product come from? Meet the people that are working on it. So that's one way to fall in love with product and learn about product is actually to be elbow to elbow with the people that are creating it. And then there's a forum-like space, something like a bleacher stadium seating location where we expect a lot more engagement with the intellectual community, arts community, the local business community, the client community to start sharing stories and ideas that are relevant to customers, to events, to anything local or cultural uh, that's going on nearby. And in fact, part of the stadium seating or the, the bleacher seating is actually seating on product, actually. Product as storage is product also as seating here. We expect that to be functional and a part of the showroom experience. You, Joe, had already mentioned that Interface is very generous with sharing their story, including some of the mistakes that we can all learn from. Mistake isn't really the right word. When, whenever you attempt something new or something that is good in theory, you know, it doesn't always go according to plan or you have to find out things along the way that adjust the plan. So tell me some things that didn't go the way you thought they were going to go or lessons that you had to learn the hard way. Well, we're still learning some. Uh, one, one, <laughs> one, is, one is that the idea of, of a workplace is, and this, this has to be like an accepted practice here, or really a guiding principle, is the workplace is never done, is that workplace is part of a continuum. In the same way, you're not going to buy the one phone for the rest of your life and never have any updates on it. You would, you would think that that sounds absurd, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think of the workplace as a place that needs to adapt and change and evolve easily over time because the way we work changes over time, 
the workplace should do that. So there's a lot of commitment in this building to permitting and actually encouraging that kind of change. So this is where we have one check and balance that's built in. So when the building is occupied and a long commitment thereafter, well requires polling of the users for their satisfaction of their environment. So if those are not satisfactory, they lose their well certification, which is really important to the marketplace for them. That's part of the story. So going on record with how your employees feel about your space and how they feel about their health and their well-being and their effectiveness in that space is part of that story. So, in fact, that seems a bit risky, but in fact, that's generous as well. You know, one thing that I will say, though, is that sort of on the story side and on the the lessons learned side is that, and this is maybe my own personal ethos coming in, but it's always aligned, it seems to me, with, with my work with Interface, is on the notion of aesthetics. It's easy to think of Interface and their products, and particularly even Floor, that had such a, a sort of a breakout brand building moment about Floor, as even in some cases, even as fashion. But the aesthetics, to me, I have sort of the old-fashioned, you know, 18th century version of aesthetics where it's equal parts beauty and dignity. And when you have something that's beautiful, it's often it's more beautiful when you know the story behind it. Mm-hmm. It was safe. Uh, you know where it came from. It didn't hurt anyone to create it. You like the, the designer that created it and the reasons behind that creation. Those are things that give a place in a building meaning. So when we talk about lessons learned, I think part of that is the honesty that comes and the authenticity that comes with being true to what's working and what's not working, telling that story. So what we expect is that this is an expensive building. It's an expensive commitment to ask people to make these kinds of changes, and they won't give up on them. So measure the space as you go forward. Find out what's working. Don't give up on it. Utilization really matters. If people don't like this conference room, but they like that one, we want to know why. And let's not give up on it. Let's make changes so that it is utilized. Utilization is an important factor to figure out what people like. So that's an easy one, and we're eager for people to get in the building and find out what adjustments we need to make. But that's part of the system. That's part of the continuum. That utilization is also what makes people feel not trapped because they know they have input and they know they can influence the space around them and they know that it's an organism that's growing and evolving with them and reflecting them. So that helps people feel connected and, and, and a part of it. And I love what you say. It, it is true. Beauty is not just skin deep. It's not the aesthetics. It's the character. It's the origin. It's the why and the meaning that's embedded in the DNA of all of the thoughts and all of the decisions that went into the project. Exactly. So what are your highest hopes for the way this building will function over the long term? If you were to just be as idealistic as you could possibly be, where does your mind go? Well, personally, but also speaking for Interface, you know, I've been an Interface for a number of years, and the reason I've been here is not because I've worked the same job, but because it's a journey and we have high aspirations. You know, back in the mid-90s when we stepped into sustainability as an idea, we stepped into the abyss without any hands to hold. Um, and the more hands we found, obviously the, the more fun it got and the more successful we became in trying to convert the company to something we were all proud of. And so that requires a certain culture, but it also requires, you know, an environment and the ability to invite people in and to have them participate in a meaningful way. So having this building be a a door where someone can walk through and participate with Interface, not only for the benefit of their company or their institution in designing a floor, but also to come and participate on topics that are worthy of world discourse and discussion, you know, how to 
deal with climate change. Um, those are tough things, mm-hmm. and Interface is stepping into that. And we need a lot of help the way we needed help in the 90s uh, around sustainability. And so my hope is that this building continues, as Joe said, to be iterative and, and be a natural organism and change to support that sort of inviting atmosphere for our associates and for the Atlanta community and the, and the global community. Be a place where people want to come and discuss difficult design problems and collaborate on the solutions. Yes. So where can we go to learn more about this project and when is it supposed to be finished? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's supposed to be done in August. I'm looking at Joe here. Um, It depends on when the stair people decide that they can make the steel. But uh, we're looking at the the end of August. We're documenting it. So you can go to blog.interface.com for updates and other things that we're known for around uh, workplace strategy and biophilia. Or, or find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, at, at Interface. And we uh, insist on people participating in the company. Uh, and we would love for people to outside in the audience to, to come and participate and engage with us. And Joe, where can we find out more about Perkins & Will? Easiest is to start at PerkinsWill.com. It's PerkinsWill.com for the website. You can find us on all social media, and including a Vimeo channel, which talks about a lot of stories about uh, clients that have done things like this, including a, a great emphasis right now on research, evidence-based design, and well-being in the workplace. Thank you for taking the time to tell me this story and all of the considerations. It's been really fascinating, and I also love hearing that collaboration, not only between you two, but the environment that you're creating, visibility and transparency are all really coming through in this project, just like you set out to accomplish. So thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening, everyone. We want you to be a part of this. So visit neocon.com and check out Neocon's blog and its social channels to stay up to date on what's happening in the industry and tell us what you want to hear. Please subscribe to Neo Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Amy Devers, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Amy Devers. And be sure to check out my other podcast, Clever, for a window into the humanity behind design at cleverpodcast.com. Neo Conversations is a production of 2VDE Media. This episode was edited by Jenny Josephson. Jenny Josephson.